This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What is up, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with one of my favorite writers and Twitter follows, Sabrina Merchant. She covers, she writes lots of words, let's put it, for SB Nation. Uh, NBA, she's covering different women's sports. I've seen her write some college basketball stuff this week. If you're not following her on Twitter, remedy that post haste. That's at Sabrina JM. That's at S A B R E E N A J M. Sabrina, welcome back. And how are you doing? I'm doing great. I love when people spell my name because everyone always searches for Sabrina with an I, and that is not the correct way of finding me. I, I like the way um yours is spelled because I feel like there's two or three like other different first names in there too. Mm-hmm. So I, ah, I, yes. I appreciate it. Um, I was looking because you're still one of the guests that is uh, nice enough to record on Skype. Everyone thinks I'm living in like the the early 2010s. It's just, that's been the most reliable way for me to record. And I saw, I feel like I just spoke with you about the Clippers and it mm-hmm. turns out that that was in October. So my sense yeah. of time is, is, is clearly not, not doing too well at the moment. Yeah. Well, for me, it's literally my second most recent Skype call. So it does feel like it just happened. <laughs> um, I do appreciate you if you have to hide, hide your confusion as to when I'm ever, I'm asking you if you can hop on Skype. Most people are like, is it 2012 or something? But you just roll with it. So I appreciate that. Let's do this. Um, so I brought you on to talk Clippers and Lakers. Double dose here. Um, I'd like to start with the the Clippers uh, who are coming off a – as we record this, they're coming off their win over Dallas, it was, believe. I can commit to having watched exactly zero minutes of that game. Um, but overall this season – have there, have you noticed any distinct changes in how the the Clippers play under Ty Lue, aside from you know anything that's personnel driven by having Serge uh, shoot jumpers instead of having Trez in those minutes? Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the major stylistic change in that they have more space in the starting lineup because they're starting Serge instead of Zubac, and uh, he just is a better a willing three point shooter, I should say, um, not even a better three point shooter, but he actually takes threes and he's uh, feared from that distance, so. It opens a lot of space in the paint for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George to sort of operate out of the post and on the elbows a little bit more than they were able to when Zubach was the starter. Uh, I think that's the major difference, just the look of that half-court offense. And there has been a significant amount of ball movement, I think, that's been added to that half-court offense. But I'm not sure how much of that, again, is because of Ty Lue versus Doc or just different personnel because they have... Nicholas Batum in the starting lineup, or what they did before yesterday, who is a more natural passer, I think, than Marcus Morris. So those personnel shifts, I think, make that, you know, a more ball movement heavy starting five than it was a year ago. Uh, but it also seems like they have just a little bit more flow beyond the initial action. Like when you have a guy like Kawhi Leonard or someone like Paul George, who's so capable of getting their shot in isolation and you only have to like run one down screen and all of a sudden he's free and he's got a six foot guy in front of him who can just shoot right over. 
like it's it's tempting to just do that and like that was a lot of what they were doing a year ago especially when you know they had a limited amount of time when Kawhi and Peachy were on the court together because of injuries and whatnot I, I totally understood that you know defaults but there has been more commitment to like okay if the initial action fails like what do we have running on the second side there's you know side pick and roll or like a weak side action running there's there's definitely a little bit more happening in the half court than there was a year ago but I do think that that's sort of come at the expense of like they don't really push the ball at all or like, you know, right. their, their defense has been a little marginalized, so to speak. So, you know, I, I think that's just a consequence of Ty Lue, right? Like we think of him as an offensive coach. I really think he got the very most out of those Cleveland teams on the offensive end. And that has brought itself over to the Clippers where I think they're supremely talented on offense and they're getting the most out of their talent. But you see the gaps, you know, in other parts of the court. Does it? And so you mentioned that they're playing slower, which I think would, if you're going to get out in transition less, and uh, I feel like they just don't even, they just don't even try and push the ball. They literally do not. Yeah. yeah. Like live rebounds, turnovers, they just don't. Is that like the main culprit behind them being 29th in the share of shots coming at the rim? And my follow-up question to that would be, does it matter when they're still third in points scored per possession and they just, they shoot the hell out of the ball from three? Yeah, I think they definitely want to get more shots at the rim. It's just not really in any of their DNA. You know, I think the only guy in the starting lineup who really put pressure on the rim last year was Ivica Zubac, and he's not a starter anymore. So it's just harder for them to generate shots in that area of the court. Uh, Generally, when they get touches in the paint, it's just so they can kick it back out for threes, and they're shooting really well on threes. So obviously there is a method to that madness. Uh, But I definitely think they would like to get more shots in the paint. Um, whether that comes from transition, which Tyloo talks about all the time, is pace, pace, pace. Um, but I, it's just again like those guys on their team aren't really wired mm-hmm. to get to the basket. Um, I we think about like Kawhi Leonard, and you think about him like in the mid range, you know. And Paul George is just a really sweet shooter, and Nicholas Batum pretty much at this point in his career, all he does is spot up. Um, even Marcus Morris is more of a mid range out guy, and Serge for whatever reason has lost a lot of his touch around the rim, so he's significantly more effective when you put him out as a jump shooter it's just their personnel doesn't really suggest that they want to take shots directly at the basket i'm of the belief that they should be starting zubach and thus generating more looks at the rim that way Mm -hmm. but that does not appear to be a direction that the clippers are headed towards so yeah i mean i I think they want to get more shots in the paint even though like you said their offense is, is pretty great regardless and I don't think there's a reason to believe that their jump shooters are not capable of this level of performance, you know, other than Batum, who obviously had just a, a terrible season in Charlotte last year. Like everybody's pretty much right in line with their career recent norms. So it doesn't seem out of the ordinary that they can continue shooting this way if these are the shots they're going to generate. And it still blows my mind that Batum is third on this team in minutes per game. That just might, <laughs> that just might be one of the most bizarre developments of the season. I, I guess you do look at the Clippers, though, as you kind of mentioned it. There's like no one – because if you look at their team, they only have two guys uh, who rank um, higher than the, the f- um, 52nd percentile in just frequency of their shots coming at the rim, and it's Zoo, and then it's Terrence mm-hmm. Mann. But then you look at I everyone guess. else, and it's like – there's no one who really can because you mentioned how Kawhi Leonard and Paul George have historically played. I think Marcus Morris is capable of – he's in the zeroth percentile of volume at the rim right now relative to his position. <laughs> so he's like the one guy you could look at and say, well, he should probably be getting there more often, but they just don't have that type of player on this team. And even just – I think with Zoo, when he's going to put pressure on the rim, like it's not going to be with the ball in his hands or maybe Trez at least provided a little bit 
of that last year. And that's also not something that Serge Ibaka is going to give you at least consistently. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you nailed it. You know, uh, zoo is, is going to get shots at the rim, but that's just because he happens to be standing there when he's passed the ball. Right. Um, and I think we kind of thought of Lou Williams as a guy who could put some pressure on the rim because he does run a lot of pick and roll and like get actions moving in that direction. But a lot of that was just because he had Trez as a pick and roll partner. And he was the guy who was just rolling really hard to the basket every single time you gave him the ball. Uh, And it's funny because I've, I've sort of done like a little bit of a, I'm not going to say a total 180 on Trez, but I've, I've, I've shifted like 90 degrees or so because the way he ended last season, it was overwhelmingly clear that like the Clippers needed something else in that spot mm-hmm. because they didn't trust Zubac enough to play him significant minutes, which I think is a, a bigger story in and of itself. But if you're not going to trust Zubac, then you need somebody else to take those center minutes. And obviously Trez was not the guy to, you know, go up against those big burly dudes, like, you know, even Boban in the first round and then obviously Nikola Jokic in the second round of the playoffs when they lost. But there's a certain level of, energy that Montrez brings, whether that's just that he's, you know, ramming his way to the hoop at every possible opportunity or just like the general vibe that he brings to the game. Uh, the Clippers really miss that just in terms of that effort level that you have on a night to night basis that Montrez brings. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how much that'll matter during the playoffs when like you, you're naturally just like hyped up to play every single night. But during the regular season, you really miss it. And you've seen it on the Lakers where like they need that. Right. Like they're going through this championship malaise and Montrez is like, nah, hell no. Like I'm going to play exactly this hard every single night, no matter what. So it's, it's an interesting like dynamic of what he brings. Um, like, I'm not sure how much the Clippers miss it, like going forward, but you kind of notice it right now. The actual concern would be, at least when you look at it on paper, is their defense being 22nd in points allowed per possession, which I never would have guessed uh, this far into the year. Is there, can you identify like a root cause behind what's happening here for them? So for me, the defense is is weird. Those numbers are really, <laughs> really weird. But when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are on the court, they're perfectly fine defensively. And when Patrick Beverly joins them, they're excellent defensively. So I happen to think it's a matter of them not having their best players on the court as much. And you can say like, oh, well, that was the case last year too, right? Like PG missed a bunch of time and Pat Bev was in and out of the lineup. But Paul and Kawhi pretty much always played together last year. Mm. So you were really maximizing their defensive potential together. And then those bench lineups, like you can say whatever you want about like the Reggie, Lou Williams, Montrezl Harrell things. Like they, they just brought so much energy that it kind of worked defensively, at least during the regular season, you know? And then this year, there's a pretty strict stagger of Kawhi and PG's minutes. And so you're not getting the defensively suffocating lineups that you were last year as often. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, when you get down the stretch into games that really matter, they're going to be playing together a lot more often. So the lineups that have been good defensively are going to be together more, you know, on the court more frequently. And you're not going to get these like Luke Kennard, Lou Williams, Reggie Jackson lineups that just hemorrhage points <laughs> as often. So I, I do believe that like Ty Lue tolerates more defensive slippage than Doc Rivers does. Like I think we're seeing that in Philly where they're still prioritizing defensive lineups that don't shoot threes, even though Daryl Morgan is the general manager there now. Right? So there is definitely a difference in philosophy among these two guys, but the personnel is so good for the Clippers. And when they're together, 
that has borne out that I'm not as concerned as like 22nd in the league would suggest. Do you get concerned at all um, by their crunch time performance in general? It's been yeah, such a small sample size, but they take so many threes during the stretches there and their offense has not been great. Their defense has not been great. Or is it just, you just kind of write that off as a, a bunch of noise because of, again, if they've been in a bunch of games that have leaked into those minutes, but it's just, I think it's, what is it? 19 games, but the minutes are you know clearly under sub 100 right now. Right. I think it's like even sub 50, but the the thing with the crunch time is, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but there's just like a, there's like some bad karma hanging over the Clippers, you know? And, uh, I, I don't want to be the person that like brings narrative into this, but sometimes I think it's relevant. You know, the Clippers had a really bad go of it in crunch time in the playoffs last year, and they famously blew a lot of leads and it wasn't pretty. And, you know, you've got the eternal Luka Doncic clip that's going to be played on his highlight reel for years and years to come. And obviously all of those blown leads to Denver. So, to me, it's more of a mental block than anything um, because, yeah, their offense looks a little bit different. Like I think they they get a little stagnant, which tends to happen during crunch time, especially when you have a guy like Kawhi or even Paul George, again, who can get a shot anytime. It It's kind of tempting to just say like, hey, do your thing, even though we know we can run better offense. And my guess is that as the season gets further along, they'll be more, let's say, creative in their crunch time offense and actually mm-hmm. try to run things instead of just, you know, one screen, PG's got a good look at a three, let's shoot it. Uh, but I also just think, like, there is something in their head, you know? Like, this is a team that screwed up pretty badly last year <laughs> and has has a history of some playoff, you know, catastrophe. So what I think is they just need like one or two games where they do really well in the crunch, the clutch and like sort of just get the monkey off their back. Like I thought the Dallas game was really good yesterday because it wasn't technically crunch time for the majority of it because like Dallas only got to within four for like 40 seconds or so. But they actually ran like real offense, you know, like PG had a big shot down the stretch, you know, the three pointer that sort of put the game away. Uh, They were locked in defensively. You know, I I just think they need like a couple of those games to just sort of right the ship and turn the direction because I don't think there's anything fundamentally different about the way they can play for the first 43 minutes versus the way they play for the last five, because it's not like they're an isolation heavy offense, you know, for the first 43 minutes, like it's, Mm. you shouldn't be able to gear in on their guys, like the way the defenses have been able to. Uh, So I'm of the belief that it's kind of just a fluke, but like, I'm not a hundred percent certain that they can work their way out of it just because it's the Clippers, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's something there. Uh, I guess there's also just the temptation. I think every team has that temptation and you normally see it from teams that like, aren't very good overall. Like that's what they revert to. But if you have a really good, and they have two good stars that can go one-on-one. And I think with Kawhi Leonard, you know, since he's entered that superstar mold, that's sort of always been the temptation. I mean, Toronto cleared it out for him a bunch during crunch time. And so I, I guess that does add an element of predictability, but at the same time, is it, is it the necessarily the wrong decision? I feel like we, anytime there's missed crunch time opportunities, there's always a harp like, well, why wasn't there you know more ball movement or why did they settle for this shot or hold the ball for so long or only put it in one guy's hands? Yeah. And to me, the, the real problem with their crunch time is their defense. Um, they've been running the small lineup with Marcus Morris at the five a lot during the end of games. 
And that has been just an absolute tire fire on the defensive end. Like they can't rebound the ball to save their lives. It really costs them against Brooklyn. You know, DeAndre Jordan was just bullying them on the glass down the stretch. And I know that that's a unit that Ty Lue likes a lot. He talks a lot about practicing with that lineup and how they have to get good playing small. And it was just bumming him out at the beginning of the season that they couldn't go to it because Marcus wasn't healthy. And, you know, just based on Ty Lue's history, it seems like if they can get a five-out offensive lineup on the court at the end of games, it's something he's going to want to do. So that's where I would look for, like, potential improvement is if that lineup can start to hold its own defensively because I have a hunch it's going to get used pretty often. That seems like the – and I, I have this jotted down later, but it seems like that could become, like, maybe their – insofar as they have one, a go-to crunch time lineup in the playoffs, um, at least <laughs> against certain matchups. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G, because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters, the more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Should Kawhi Leonard be getting more MVP love or just, I mean, like you just look at his numbers and they're, I know this season is weird, but they're just, they're absolutely absurd. 56%. On twos, that's the second highest mark of his career. He's hitting 39.8% of his threes, also the second mark of his career, 26 and five, basically. And he can still, I mean, it's Kawhi Leonard. He can just clamp down defensively whenever he wants. Uh, should he be, I, I think it's it was, at least until Joel Embiid's injury, it felt like a LeBron, Jokic, Embiid conversation where I leaned that I thought it was more going to be Embiid, Jokic. But he should he be in like that Giannis tier, at least, where it's like, hey, these guys can still wedge their way into this. So at the thought of the se- start of the season, at the start of the season, I thought that Kawhi should be in the MVP conversation a little bit more. And I would say up until like the last two weeks or so, I was on that, you know, wavelength. But, you know, there's there's got to be like some measure of team success here. And as the Clippers sort of falter a little bit, I think Kawhi gets some of the blame for that. Uh, I actually think that Giannis has sort of surpassed him on the MVP conversation, which, I mean, Giannis is never going to win because they're not going to give him three in a row without winning a title. Let's just be real, uh, regardless of how good of a season he's having. But, yeah, I mean, Kawhi Leonard, like, individually, these stats are just bonkers, right? Like, you you ran them down um, offensively. I feel like he just gets more and more gifted the longer he stays with the Clippers. Like, his playmaking is just off the charts impressive right now. Uh, the types of reads he's able to make in the half-court offense are just like, I didn't know that he had that in his bag before he got to Los Angeles. And it's really important to how the Clippers even function because they don't have a traditional point guard, right? Like, they put the ball in Kawhi's hands or Paul's hands and make them go to work. And it's able to be a really, really effective offense because of the type of vision that Kawhi has in the half court. So, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's been outstanding on that end of the floor. I do think that defensively, you know, he, he doesn't turn on that like Kawhi Leonard defensive player of the year gear very often anymore. 
You saw it actually. I'm going to bring up this Dallas game again that you watched zero minutes of, but he was excellent. Uh, really, just truly excellent down the stretch of that game yesterday. During the entire second half, like that was legitimately the best defense I've ever seen Kawhi play in a Clippers uniform. It's so, a great game you know, not to watch, it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> the only reason I would say that maybe he doesn't belong in that conversation to the same extent as like, you know, Giannis LeBron and those other second-tier candidates is just because I don't think that he's been fully engaged on that end of the floor. And, you know, it's it's hard to like say, oh, well, Kawhi's an excellent defensive player, but the Clippers are 22nd on defense, right? Like I, I know I give a lot of caveats for that, but at a certain point he has to take some responsibility for that. And if the Clippers are going to stay in like that fourth range in the West, then it's hard for me to push him ahead of those other guys that you mentioned. Do you know why it seems that Paul George is so high variance? Is it, does it have anything to do with him coming back from the right foot injury he had? He just right now, he feels like the most likely player in the NBA to go eight of 11 from three, but then one of eight the next night or vice versa. It's interesting. I hadn't really noticed that until you brought it up and you're absolutely right that he's been super, hit or miss since that injury. And maybe that's it, right? Like he had a foot injury, a swollen toe, I want to say an edema. And I have to imagine that that's super painful when you're wearing basketball shoes. And uh, it's probably got to affect your footwork when you're, you know, going up for jump shots. Uh, The thing with PG though, is like, he's always gonna be guarded out there, right? Mm -hmm. Even if he goes one for eight or whatever. So the spacing is obviously very important. Um, to me, I thought, God, I, I just keep doing this. Um, it's it's really important when he just stops forcing it and like tries to get to the hoop. I know he's made a big fuss recently about how he doesn't get foul calls uh, like other superstars do. It's been like a throughout my career, I've never been a guy to get into the foul game. And I don't know if that's true or not, but definitely this year, he hasn't really been getting to the foul line. But I think it's so important when he actually just tries to get into the paint and you know, even generate some of those like Kobe assists where like enough guys collapse on him that like Zoo can get an offensive rebound or somebody else can clean up the miss, uh, which again, he, he did yesterday against the Mavericks, but <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I no, really should totally like okay. give myself new sources of material. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if that's like something we can count on going forward that PG's just going to be like inconsistent. He was, he was so hot to start the season, like just unbelievably good shooting numbers from Paul George like his true shooting percentage was just off the charts so I it's totally understandable to accept expect like some regression from that but I would hope that like as he gets more and more removed from that injury absence that his consistency starts to come up again because like I mean eight of 11 like we're not going to expect that very often but he should be making like you know four threes a game like I don't know why these singular performances keep happening what have you, and you kind of talked about this already, what have you thought of Serge Ibaka's fit so far? Uh, I And again, the spread element is there. Is there anything that you view as, does he bring anything else to you? Because in Toronto, it always kind of felt like if he wasn't getting his like 12 or something shots a game, I wasn't sure how much he was going to impact. Do you think it, there's like an element that they're lacking now because of him? Would you view him as a decided upgrade for this roster relative to how they played last season? I think Serge is definitely better than Montrez for what the Clippers are trying to do because uh, they don't have to put the ball in his hands as much as Montrez had it. And that benefits like the rest of the guys they have on the roster. And it also provides them extra level of rim protection because their power forwards are not really, you know, going to help in that respect at all. Like Marcus Morris is not a last line of defense kind of guy. Nicholas Batum is absolutely not that kind of guy. So you need to have that from your center position. And, it, you know, in that respect, Serge 
definitely more than what Trez was giving for the Clippers. I also think it's quite helpful that he and Kawhi are friends because there was, you know, some some tension in the Clipper locker room last year. <laughs> was there? And, uh, <laughs> you know, some of it can be traced back to a guy who was now on the Lakers. But Serge and Kawhi are buddies from Toronto. And there is definitely more of a feeling of, like, good vibes from the Clippers this year, even when they lose. So I, I don't think you can understate that. Like, it's it's got to help when you're going through this season where you literally can't do anything but play basketball and hang out with your family, that, like, the guys you're playing basketball with are actually good dudes and you enjoy being around them, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that they have that element. Uh, but I also think that Serge, uh, his, I think I mentioned this earlier, like, it's kind of comical how bad his touch around the basket is at this point. Like, uh, I, I don't know when when it went away. Like, I got to be honest, I pay less attention to him when he was in the Eastern Conference than when he was in the West. So it's been like since 2016 when I was watching him on the reg. And I thought he was like a really good finisher. And that is not really the case anymore, which is why I think the Clippers space him as often as possible. Uh, there is like, there's like a little bit of ego involved with Ibaka. You know, like you mentioned, if he's not getting his 12 shots, like 12 shots is a lot of shots. And there is an argument to be made that he does not deserve that many shots on an offense that also has all of these other weapons that we've talked about. But the Clippers make it a point to run like the first play of the game for him at the beginning of the game and at the start of the third quarter. And he's starting the game instead of Avita Zubac, which, again, I've mentioned that I think that's a mistake, but Mm -hmm. he's still doing it. And I don't think he's the same like uh, switchable defender that we might have thought Serge was earlier in his career. Like you put him on an island with a guard. I think he's getting blown by these days. Whereas Zoo has sort of shown more of an ability to be effective in those situations. So there's like very specific things that Ibaka does well, right? Like he he's going to give you those jumpers. He uh, is like a pretty decent passer out of the short roll these days. Like that's a very helpful action for the Clippers to run. And again, like good rim protector. But he kind of gets, when he gets outside of himself, like when he decides like I'm going to post up on this possession, it just, it's bad. And um, there's not really anything you could do about it. So I don't think it's an accident that, like, he hasn't been closing that many games. Uh, Tyloo goes with Zubac a lot, and he goes with Marcus Morris at the five a lot. And, you know, he he often says postgame, like, oh, you know, there were only four minutes left, and I didn't think it was fair to surge, like, get him back up when he's been cold for the whole fourth quarter. And it's like, well, that's a very convenient excuse. (laughs) You could just say, I think the other guys are better at this point in the game, which is what I think is happening. Every no matter how many times I watch Zubats, I'm always caught off guard by by his foot speed. Like he just doesn't look like he has that type of juice um, mm-hmm. in his feet. And the question I actually have for you is: Do you view him as like the Clippers' third most important player at this point, or if it's not him, who do you look at it as? So I've been on the bandwagon that Patrick Beverly is the Clippers' third most important player, pretty much since the start of the 2019-20 season. Uh, I think it's harder and harder to say that Zoo is not their third best player, honestly, because he's just damn good at protecting the rim. He rolls so hard. He sets such good screens, like just bone crushing screens. It's just a lost art in the NBA, honestly. And I love the way Zubach plays. Uh, but I do think that the Clippers can sort of manage without him, not for extended stretches, but like you can put Ibaka in the game and still get your rim protection and you can play like Patrick Patterson or Marcus Morris at the five and still get some spacing. And there are ways to kind of fill in for Zubach when he's unavailable, which let's be clear, never happens because he has never missed a game due to injury as a Clipper, which you think about all of the injuries that the Clippers have gone through over the last two years. He's the one constant. Like I think in his entire Clipper tenure, 
he might have like sat out one game against the Warriors in the playoffs just because he couldn't hang with them. But like, that's it. You know, like he's <laughs> always, always available. Uh, which brings us to Patrick Beverly, who's kind of the opposite side of the coin, where the Clippers don't have anybody to replicate Patrick Beverly, right? Like he is their only good defender at the point of attack. I think he's a little bit better now on guys who are slightly bigger, you know, maybe off ball, but he's still the best guy you have on point guards. And that's an important trait to have in the Western conference. Let's be clear. There's a lot of, a lot of really dynamic lead guards that the Clippers could come up against in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you saw it like really just displayed for everyone to see in the playoffs against Dallas when Patrick Beverly missed the final five games of that series and Luka Doncic and Trey Burke was even just lighting up the Clippers because they had no resistance at the point guard position. And, you know, we talk about how like the Clippers don't really have a playmaker at that spot. And Patrick Beverly is basically like a three and D wing who happens to be in a point guard sized body, but at least like he can bring the ball up against pressure. At least he makes attempts to drive to the basket, like off of closeouts and can ping the ball around a little bit on offense. Uh, there's just, I, I don't know that you can really trust Reggie Jackson to play that role in the playoffs because he's just a turnstile defensively. And we've seen that over and over again. Um, even if he is the one guy on the Clippers who brings like a modicum of pace, you know, in terms of bringing the ball up the court, I don't think you can trust Lou Williams from work Sunday minutes in the playoffs because we have what, like a decade's worth of evidence on he Lou would, Williams. He would push really back against him. that and he would struggle to do it accurately. But <laughs> yes, you are correct. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I do think like Lou Williams was a little bit, uh, was actually better than people realized in the playoffs last year, but like, who cares when you're losing in the second round after being up 3-1? Um, right. And then, you know, they brought in Luke Kennard, who they thought was going to be that guy as a playmaker, and he's not even in the rotation at this point. You know, he's only available when somebody else is, you know, ruled out for injury, like he has been recently. But Patrick Beverly, like, he's he's the guy. He's the one point guard you can count on. And that's why I think he's the third most important, just because, like, he leaves a gaping hole on the roster when he's not there. But I think we're coming to the point where, like, Zubach is the third best. And I know that, like, Clippers fans are trying to work out all these fake trades to get guys to come to L.A. The only way any of these trades work is if you're willing to move Zubach. And I don't think the Clippers should do that. Yeah, the the salaries that of some of the players that the Clippers seem to be interested in is just like, okay, it's not even just Zubac. It's like, are you trading Beverly or Marcus Morris? Like, yeah. you're not matching Kyle Lowry's salary. Uh, you're not even Ricky Rubio. I saw. I think that was from Sports Illustrated. So, and so, do you not? I'm jumping around here for time purposes. So, do you not ascribe to um, what feels like the prevailing sentiment that they do need another point guard, or is it more about, as you mentioned with Jackson, you want someone who can maybe bring some pace without being an absolute sieve on the defensive end? Or do you think that they actually need something other than, than a point guard leading into not even necessarily the trade deadline, but if you have any targets that spring to mind, but just at large, something that could come back to bite them during the playoffs? Yeah, I don't, I don't think they really need any upgrades on the offensive end. Um, I don't watch their crunch time offense and think like, oh, we need a another lead guard to help them sort out you know, this stagnation. I don't think that's the case. Uh, so to me, it's not really like, oh, a point guard would fix all of the ills that the Clippers have. I, I just don't see it that way. Uh, I am coming to the point where I'm not sure if Patrick Beverly is going to be available on the court as long as you need him in the playoffs because, mm -hmm. you know, he missed a lot of games last season. He missed five games in the playoffs, and he was a shell of himself in that Denver series. So I'm kind of, you know, reaching like a maybe a George Hill type situation <laughs> where, uh, you know, you just need a guy who's going to be there, right? And I know he's a little bit older, he's a little bit creaky, but so is Pat Beverly. And, you know, George Hill at least didn't miss any playoff games last season. 
uh, he kind of fits that defensive ethos that you're looking for and and that he can switch, you know, with that five-man lineup that the Clippers like to close with. He's a good three-point shooter. You know, he kind of just fills in what you're looking for with Pat with more reliability, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't don't look at the trade landscape and see a guy where he's going to crack the top eight of the Clippers rotation and can be had for the limited assets the Clippers are willing to part with, right? Uh, so that that's sort of where I land. I, I don't think they need a playmaker. Like I just don't think that's what it is. But I I am concerned about Patrick Beverly being ready to go, which is why I think they should make meaningful, you know, like ploys to Oklahoma City to like, hey, I know we've given you everything we already have, but like <laughs> we need this guy. <laughs> uh, look, you might you've shorted enough if you're Oklahoma City. You've shorted enough of the Clippers' future. You might as well just keep shorting it. So if you can get, you know. <laughs> I mean, they do have those Detroit seconds, too, which have to be semi-attractive. That's and, true. I was really excited when uh, the original asking price on P.J. Tucker was three seconds. And I was like, oh, well, the Clippers have, like, Detroit seconds. Like, those are good seconds. But then apparently that has since been upgraded to a first-round pick because the market is uh, – Oh, it's been upgraded? I did not see that. It, I, yeah. I thought they'd be lucky to get multiple seconds for him at this point, given the way he's played and that he's just not with the he's team. just god-awful, hasn't he? Yeah. I, I, something tells me this might be a James Harden situation where he plays a little bit better on a team that, that matters. But – yeah. The two names I came up with, and now please brace yourself because they're they're clearly doorbusters. Um, and I talked myself out of the first one. DeLon Wright I thought could be helpful as some okay. um, defensive optionality, and then he could put some pressure on the rim, but I don't think he cracks your – unless he's shooting threes like he was for part of the season in Detroit off the catch. But then he gets injured, and also the money is just – he makes $9 million, which isn't a lot, but then it's like are you giving up Lou Williams in a trade for DeLon Wright? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't – I think Lou Williams would be more valuable in the playoffs because from scratch scoring is more valuable. So I've settled on Sterling Brown. Hmm. I thought maybe if you brought it, I was saying that if they don't think Beverly, I wasn't even talking about his injury. My thought process was they don't think he's the guy to go up against some of these like guards. Sterling Brown is more than capable of doing that. And he comes with the added benefit of, no, you don't want to put the ball in his hands, even though Houston has, because I mean, it's freaking Houston right now. Yeah. Uh, But he's really like, he's hitting his threes and to get that defensive mindset, I don't know what it would take, um, but the Rockets signed him for nothing. He's not, they don't have his bird right. So if you can turn, that player that you got essentially for free into a second round pick, I would think that'd be valuable. And it works, you know, if you can trade um, Fiondu just to the, to the Rockets, like that's how you, and I think Brown's making the minimum anyway, so you don't even technically send anyone out, but um, for the Clippers, their hard cap situation is, I guess, dire would be the word. It's dire. Yes, that is correct. Um, That's an interesting one, Sterling Brown. I'm going to, I'm going to hit on DeLon Wright first because I actually wrote about him a little bit over the off season, like a sort of sign in trade with Montrez. Um, I just really like his size at that position, you know, in terms of like being, again, a, a guy who can switch onto wings and you're not worried about it. And at that point, like he wasn't getting any run for Dallas. So it's like, why not, you know, give him an opportunity to play a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't know if he has like the the creative juice, you know, that the Clippers are looking for to where he's like an upgrade over what they have at that position. But Sterling Brown is really interesting because if there is a you know, a defect in the Clippers roster. I, I happen to think it's like, like athleticism. And that's a weird thing to say because like they have a lot of good athletes, but they don't have anybody with like, who sort of like jumps out of the gym, you know? Right. Uh, and like, if they had somebody who was a little bit like bouncier, a little bit springier who, and that's, that's Sterling Brown. That's like a really interesting fit. Um, 
that's that's so interesting. I'm I'm just like a little lost in my thoughts here because I really like that idea. Uh, I was trolled again, I on it because I wrote like, about it, and people wanted to know, know why I was wasting space on, on Sterling Brown, and I was like, who else do you want the Clippers to trade I, for? I'm with you, Dan. That's that's kind of interesting because he, again, I'm I'm not gonna like go too much of what he was doing in Houston because it's hard to take away too much from what's happening with the Rockets right now. But he was in a strong defensive ecosystem in Milwaukee. Obviously, he was not getting a lot of time there, so I'm not sure if we can take away too much from that. But yeah, the move yeah, was I definitely keeping like, Pat Connaughton, but not Sterling Brown. That's like the, the archetype, you know, of the player. I think that the Clippers should be looking for is just sort of like a young flyer of a guy. Uh, I noticed today that the Wizards are making some of their young guys available, like Troy Brown or Isak Bonga, who I think make a lot of sense on the Clippers. Uh, just again, more wing defenders who have some bounce. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's like sort of the archetype you're looking for. But yeah, that's interesting. I would not have laughed at you when I read that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, uh, Isak Banga would be interesting. And uh, another I'm, former Laker to add to the rotation. <laughs> I'm also just laughing because I remember seeing the, the report that the Wizards were showcasing Troy Brown Jr. And I was like, so they've showcased him by playing him a total of 39 minutes over the past 11 <laughs> games. Um, last thing on the Clippers for a move to the Lakers um, is do you see. Like, is anyone's like? What do you see a playoff rotation looking like for this team at full strength? You see anyone losing minutes? Is, does Luke Kennard have any wiggle room to work his way back into those plans? I also have like theorized like if you can get the Knicks involved, um, like maybe is there a way to work out a Luke Kennard deal? Because then base year compensation doesn't matter if you can send another player into someone's cap space. But then it's like, well, if you're giving up Luke Kennard and another player, like who are you trying to get back in that scenario? And so I'm just curious as to looking at how the Clippers have played now. Um, is there anyone whose role you would see demonstratively changing once they reach the the postseason? It's it's interesting. I, I think Terrence Mann's minutes might lower a little bit just because he is a little less consistent, you know, than you might want in a playoff rotation. I think uh, Ty Lue is going to want guys who you know exactly what to expect out of them on a game in game out basis. And Terrence provides that spark, that energy, right? Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, he's the only guy other than Zubac who actually gets a decent number of his shots at the rim. It's good cutter, you know, but he's not going to be guarded from the three-point line. We know that he gets a little jumpy on defense, is not quite as solid as you'd want him to be. And I almost wonder if they'd be better off just like giving that eight and a half man minutes to Luke Kennard because he can provide some playmaking, give, you know, the other guys a little bit of rest on the offensive end. And then he's, you know, despite like what is theoretically a down season for him with the Clippers, he's a knockdown shooter, like 40 plus percent from three point range. Uh, so that, that might be it. Like you're going to have your top eight of the starters plus Morris Zubac and uh, Lou off the bench. And then I think that eight and a half will just be like a split between Luke and Reggie, depending on what the situation calls for. Is there anything I did not blow through with the Clippers that you think needs to be discussed about them? No, I mean, I think if we've gotten to the Sterling Brown trade package, then we've hit just about everything. <laughs> Which would mean onto the Lakers. And the obvious point here is Anthony Davis, who's going to be out at least another three plus weeks, I think that report said. So on a scale of not at all to oh shit, how concerned should the Lakers be about this right cash slash Achilles um, tendinosis that he's dealing with? Oh, I think we're like firmly on a nine out of the oh shit 10 meter because... Uh, the fact that, you know, there was a non-Laker report, right? I think it was Chris Haynes who said that he's going to be out even longer than what the Lakers originally said. You never want that to happen, um, even though I know that the Lakers have more leaks than other teams around the league just because 
people are more interested in what's going on here. Uh, I mean, like this is not a team that's going to win a playoffs. I'm going to, I'm going to step that back for a second. This is not a team that's going to win two playoff series without Anthony Davis, right? Like it's, it's not going to happen. There are too many good teams in the Western conference. We've seen them just get their, like the knocked off the floor with Utah and Phoenix. And I mean, I feel like a lot of other teams have blown them out with Anthony Davis, but um, it's been bad. It's been really bad. And he was like the switchbuster. Like he was the, just that piece that you put into the playoff series. And like all of a sudden the other team has no answers for you, you know, during last year's postseason. I think there was a reasonable argument that he was better than LeBron James up until the finals. You know, it certainly more important to the Lakers uh, up until the finals when LeBron just had this, you know, performance that was like, hey, I'm not going to give up my finals MVP. Like, it's not happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I am very concerned because, like, I, I can't help but think about the Kevin Durant situation, right? Where, like, it was a calf injury and then he comes back to play and, what, 12 minutes later he's torn his Achilles. And nobody wants that, right? Like, you've just given a five-year contract to Anthony Davis. He said part of the reason was because he was scared about his injury history. And lo and behold, here it is. I, I mean, I don't think that you can be like at a point where you're sacrificing this season because you have a 36 year old LeBron James who's didn't come to Los Angeles to sacrifice seasons. He already sacrificed one. Uh, so it's, it's just really tricky because I, I don't think the Lakers are in a position where they can afford to set him out, but that might be the healthiest option for him going forward. And it's, it's hard to reconcile both of those competing aims and uh, it's, it just sucks. It really sucks. Yeah, I get skeeved whenever I just hear the word Achilles. Um, that is yeah, my that is good. my official take. <laughs> like I know we had the whole like, oh my god, Kevin Durant looks so great now. Like, can you imagine like a guy coming back from an Achilles and looking this good? And then like, I mean, when was the last time Kevin Durant played? Yeah, he's dealing with hamstring stuff it's, now, and also not... Anthony Davis is coming off the shortest um, off season in sports history too. <laughs> it's it's really scary, um, and it's just a bummer because you. you the, the title race, I think, is really wide open this year, and you're just taking one team out of the picture if Anthony Davis is unavailable. And kind of sticking with him, was it? did you look at his shot problem? Were you at all concerned or uh, at least on, on my level befuddled? I, like, I know he was Kevin Durant in the bubble for mid-range, yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't really getting the rim as much this year, and it wasn't because he was taking more threes like Frank Vogel asked. He was actually taking fewer of his shots from three-point range, and so – is that mid-range volume? Was that the byproduct of him trying to diversify his offense? Was it? Was he fatigued, out of shape? Was he injured before he was actually injured? I just it was. It's been such a stark drop off when you look at the rim to just the number of shots he was taking from mid-range. So I will say that I'm a little bummed that he's not taking more threes, just because you know he's been given the green light, and I think that would do wonders for the Lakers' offense if Anthony Davis was a credible three-point shooter. You know, not just in percentage, but also in volume. Uh, so yeah, that is a little bum. That's a bummer that he's not taking more threes, but as far as the mid range, like Anthony Davis, uh, it's funny because he's only had one like deep playoff run, but he sort of came into the season with a thing like, Oh, I, I get it now. Like I know what I have to do in the playoffs. So I'm just going to chill for most of the regular season. And like, I'm going to give it a good effort on defense because I know that's what the team needs. But on offense, like, I don't want to bang around against big guys. Like, I don't want to play center. I don't want to get in the post. I don't want to, like, you know, bruise up against these bigger guys. Like, I'm just going to hang out in the mid-range, you know, take some take some jumpers and have a good time with it. And that's sort of how I saw the Anthony Davis regular season going. Like, I don't think it's anything to be worried about. It's just uh, it's a lot of effort to play the way he did during the playoffs, right? And it's a lot of effort to play the way Anthony Davis does when he's fully involved. 
So if he wants to just save it all for the defensive end and then just like be like a, you know, mid-range assassin who's not really making a shot on offense, <laughs> so be it. <laughs> I do think his importance to the defense has been underscored since he's out. And I know they've been missing Gasol for a little bit and they were missing Schroeder mm-hmm. at one point. Um, but the on-off numbers with him are all have always been weird. And I say always, this is only a second season in LA. They have always been weird. I agree. Yeah. And <laughs> It's, I mean, if you look at the lineups, he uplifts like to defensive mediocrity, you understand why. And they're 19th in defense since he's left. And I think, mm-hmm. so that's at least underscored his value. And also they can't, well, I won't say they can't, but like Frank Vogel refuses to play Montrezl Harrell as much without him. And so it's part of his value is rooted there because like, the, doesn't it sort of feel like now, you know, you mentioned how you sort of did a 180 on Trez last year. Doesn't it sort of feel like he's doesn't fit well with the Lakers anymore either? You know, I was totally on that train of what is Trez doing on this team for, I would say, the first 36 games of the season. And then they came back from the break. And against Indiana, he's the reason they win that game in the fourth quarter, that LeBron James, Montrez, Harrell, high pick and roll, and Harrell just, you know, unguardable, rolling to the basket, or or even, like, leave LeBron to cover Harrell, right? Like, it's it's really hard to defend that. But, um, and then against uh, the Warriors last night, just, again, the Warriors are, like, like an excuse for a good NBA team at this point. Uh, all due respect <laughs> to Golden State. But like he, the Lakers went 27 out of 27 at the rim last night. Like Montrez was dunking everything in sight. He got like he James Wiseman picked up a tech like trying to guard him. I mean, it's he has been so important just to bring like an extra level of force for the Lakers. And you think about what the Lakers identity was last year, right? Like they were a big like strong team that was just going to punk you, you know, like just be like bigger, faster, stronger than you. And yeah, maybe Trez isn't bigger, but he's definitely faster and stronger. And he kind of resembles that Dwight Howard bully ball identity, even though he's like six inches shorter than Dwight was. So I actually am starting to see the fit with Trez. And it took some time because, you know, they were playing him as the defensive five, even in those Anthony Davis lineups at the start of the season. And that makes no sense. Like, let's be clear. I, I get that you use the regular season to experiment. Frank, that was stupid. That was just a bad idea. Um, and now they're, you know, using, they're leveraging his speed a little bit more, right? They're bringing him up to the level of the screen and like making him rotate a little bit more instead of just hanging back and drop. Cause Trez can't do that. Like let's, I, I like a lot of things Trez does. That's not one of his strengths. So you're starting to see him optimized a little bit more. Like I know you mentioned the, like Trez's minutes have gone down without Anthony Davis. I think that's peaked back up after the all-star break. Now that, you know, Vogel and the coaching staff have had some time to figure out how to use Trez in these situations, you know? Mm-hmm. And I really do believe, like, I know it's only two games. I'm like, I, again, I made some cracks about Golden State and Indiana is like a fine team. They're, they're okay. You know, they're not like a great team. So I shouldn't be putting too much stock into what Trez did in like two games after the all-star break. But I, I have a lot of faith in what Vogel and the coaching staff can do with the benefit of time. And I, I think there has been some sort of corner that they've turned in how to maximize Trez, especially in these non-Anthony Davis, non-Marcus Hall situations. Maybe I'm just scarred from the end of his season with the Clippers. It's quite and... possible. It's really it left a really bad impression, like a really bad impression. And as I get... someone who watches these two teams a lot, like I spent like 30 games trying to get over it with Trez. <laughs> And well, I mean, I would be curious. I guess I would have to see it work in the postseason against like certain matchups. Whereas you mentioned, just sort of no one on the Warriors is like playing Trez really off the floor in the front court. And even with the Pacers, mm-hmm. like 
that's not, I mean, Sabonis is really good, but you could go to Sabonis or Turner at the five, and that's not like super mismatchy. So if this, I guess if this stands, I'm going to have to rethink some some Trez stuff. Uh, Let's look, be clear. I'm not saying that it's going to hang in the playoffs quite yet, and I, I was pretty clear about that from the moment they signed him, but the regular season matters. Like, it, you have to build habits and uh, survive it. They have to, like, get a good record, I think, because, like, they're going to be fans in the playoffs, and, like, you don't want to just be traveling to Utah all the time. Like, there's altitude problems there too so i think that there's like a 10 15 minute role for him in the playoffs i do believe that that's going to exist um and like those minutes matter like you know the whole non-lebron minutes have just been a disaster for the lakers like the entire season so i'm not saying quite yet that he's postseason ready but i'm much closer to that than i was you know like a couple weeks ago where do you view lebron sort of in the the mvp race if you were to build your own quick ladder and do you think that uh, I think obviously Joel Embiid's absence is going to help anyone who's in the MVP race at this point. But does AD's absence actually make his case stronger? Well, it didn't help when they lost the first four games without him. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but uh, you know, LeBron's got the narrative. Like I know I brought this up with the Clippers earlier. Uh, it's it's in LeBron's favor. You know, uh, he did not win MVP last year when I thought he should have. Uh, you know, get at me, all of you. Giannis people with his statistical profile and whatever, like it was built up against playing the Knicks and the Hornets every single game. But Ooh, uh, <laughs> that is a level that is spicy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I think LeBron was denied a rightful MVP last year. And I do think that he is aware of what that would mean for his place in history, right? Like if you get to number five in terms of individual MVPs, now you're on a level with Michael and well, like, Bill Russell, uh, it's it's very limited company. And let's be clear, like that matters to him. I don't know if you're watching the Lakers-Warriors game last night, but he was two rebounds shy of a triple-double in the fourth quarter, right? There's about eight minutes left. The Lakers are just obliterating the Warriors. There's no reason for LeBron to be on the court anymore. Mm-hmm. Steve Kerr calls timeout, and you're thinking, okay, well, LeBron's going to sit, right, because this is a natural stoppage. No, he comes back in, <laughs> um, gets his second rebound. Okay, he gets his second rebound deliberately fouls on the ensuing play, like the cheapest take foul you've ever seen so he can get out. And you look at the bench and like after he gets the rebound, both Lionel Hollins and Jason Kidd have tapped Frank like, yo, now we can get him out. (laughs) (laughs) He cares. That's when he says he doesn't care. You can't believe him. He's The numbers matter to him. Okay. He wants this fifth MVP and they have a, uh, an acceptable schedule over the next couple of weeks. So I think if LeBron can go on, you know, a run while Joel is out uh, and they can get back to like the two seed in the West, you know, which is no small feat because Phoenix is just playing wonderfully. Uh, I think it's there for the taking, you know, I thought Embiid had sort of gotten head and shoulders above anybody, but if, if record wise, they can be better than the Sixers. Like I don't think Joel's case is stronger than his and that's not because I don't think that he's had a better season because let's face it, I do think he has, but the, the storyline matters and coming off the season that he just did being 36 years old. Like I know that's not a criteria. Like it's not the best 36 year old season. It's the best player in the league, but there's just a lot working for him. You know, all of these factors sort of mesh together for LeBron, like, you know, being able to carry the team after the shortest off season without Anthony Davis, you know, in mm-hmm. the tougher Western conference, I think it's all going to add up if he goes on a nice stretch over the next two weeks. Yeah, the, I think the Embiid injury ends up being big for him because at some point, I think it's important to look at the quality of minutes, but mm-hmm. when, when the quality of minutes is so high across the board, 
Um, LeBron is, I think, 10th in total minutes played in the season right now. And so you don't even need to lean on the, and I think a lot of people, not you, but a lot of people are like, you know, he's 36 and it's like, well, you can't really factor that in. Like that's not part of, but it's, he doesn't, he also doesn't need to factor it in. I think you you do. Well, you do, but well, actually I would argue you don't like, doesn't he have enough um, of a case where you, I mean, you laid it out for me where it's Mm -hmm. like, he's coming off the short, the short off season. He's carrying the Lakers without Anthony Davis. There's a chance they finish what second, third, um, first in the Western. I mean, if they finish top two in the West under all those circumstances, uh, you can say, well, look at LeBron doing this at age 36, but like, is it Nikola Jokic's fault that LeBron is 10 years older than him or whatever it is? You're right. You don't need the age, but I think it helps. Oh, it, I think it it, it helps. Yeah. I just don't think it should, is my point. Yeah. I, I just, I find myself just uh, well, amazed by it every time I think about it, which is why I can't help but bring it up. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm just dumbfounded by watching LeBron yeah. now. I mean, <laughs> can you think like, uh, I don't know, like five, six years ago, could you imagine a world in which LeBron takes step back three pointers and you don't think it's a terrible shot? Like no. It, <laughs> and that's where we're at right now. <laughs> and it's funny because when he got to the Lakers, I had to sort of, you know, wrap my head around the fact like, yeah, we, you know, the Lakers got LeBron James, but this is going to be a more limited version of LeBron. Like, right. He's not going to be the guy he was before. And it's like, no, like that's not the case. He's just, he's just a cyborg. And this is what he does and has been doing for so many years. It's, it's astounding. I, I won't even read, click, pay attention to anyone just saying like, this is the year he drops off. Like he's earned primo benefit of the doubt lebron lebron will exit his prime when lebron wants to exit his prime that's that's what i've decided uh what have you thought about the this has been it feels like it's been a bizarrely controversial topic among lakers fans what have you made of the mark gasol experience so far so i'm glad you brought this up because i have i have a lot of strong mark gasol feelings are they as strong as your Giannis attentacupo winning mvp last year feelings (laughs) you know you be the judge that dan uh I thought when the Lakers signed Mark that they were aware of how he played in the bubble, you know, with Toronto. It was it's not great, let's be clear. And we're sort of hoping that he would return to how he had played for the majority of the regular season with the Raptors because the bubble was sort of an anomalous experience, right? Like I think they applied that same logic to Trez when they signed him. And I think the logic of signing Mark makes a lot of sense because JaVale and Dwight were not playing down the stretch in the postseason. They weren't even starting games in the postseason, let's be clear. Like, they were increasingly not a part of the rotation. Right. So they were trying to find a center who could hang in those situations. And once you lost Dwight, you needed a guy who could go up against Joel, who could go up against Nikola Jokic. And I think Gasol has acquitted himself fairly well in those situations. Now, if you want him to, like, be athletic and, like, blocking shots at the rim, like, then why did you sign Marc Gasol? Like, it just seems like they're... <laughs> you know, looking for someone who appears to be more like JaVale and Dwight. And he's, he's not that guy. He, like a lot of the stuff he does is very nuanced and the defensive rating when he's on the court is really good. And I think we saw during, uh, you know, stretches of the season when you put him out on the perimeter and let him orchestrate the offense from the top of the key, like he's really good at finding cutters and making the motion work. And for whatever reason, the Lakers didn't do a lot of that at the start of the season. They were still playing Anthony Davis out on the perimeter and like putting Gasol in the dunker spot. And it's like, Gasol doesn't dunk. Like, why call, are we yeah, doing so that? That's like the finger roll spot for him or whatever. Exactly, <laughs> right? So it's kind of the Trez situation where I think he was just being misutilized at the start of the season. And at the time, and then, of course, there's the fact that he, say what you will about JaVale and Dwight Howard, like, they are confident in their offense. They are very confident in their offense. Like, I don't know if you read, like, exactly those 10 things this week, but, like, the Dwight Howard dribbling adventures and JaVale McGee's, like, 
some of the shots that he takes in Cleveland, like those guys will let it fly. Mark is not that guy. Mark is a lot more demure in the half court offensive setting, right? Like he, he gets an open three. He still thinks about the next pass. And it's just an adjustment for him to play the way the Lakers want him to, where they just want him to be a little bit more free, you know, a little bit less, a little bit more decisive, a little less, let's do everything for the team. And I thought he was getting closer to that point before, you know, he had to take this health and safety absence. So yes, the Lakers offense looks very different without that vertical spacing. And I would argue that is just complicated by the fact that their actual, you know, three point spacing has just been shitty for the last few weeks. So that makes Mark look even worse because, you know, the way the Lakers compensated for their bad shooting last year was because they had the vertical spacing and they had neither for a little while there. So it was just like a confluence of factors that like made the Lakers look really bad and they're looking for a scapegoat. And it's like, oh, well, let's put it on Marcus All. And I don't think that's fair. I think he's done exactly what the Lakers asked of him. I think he was getting even better before he had to set out. And the fact that they think they need another center to augment this rotation, like is stupid. Um, if Damian Jones can play meaningful minutes for you on a 10 day, like why are we wasting real resources to acquire a center? Thank uh, you. I, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand the discourse. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like if you want to convert Damian Jones to the rest of the season contract, by all means do that. Like I think he fills Quinn Cook's roster spot just as well as Quinn Cook did. Like that's great. Uh, but no, do not put like actual assets into acquiring a center. That is a bad idea. Uh, and I don't think that if they got a center off the buyout market that he would even play minutes for them in the postseason, whereas Mark realistically could. So just let him, you know, grow with the team if we're going to give everybody else time to get better. Got to give the same leeway to Marcus Gasol. Yeah, and the only reasonable way you should give up, I mean, first of all, the Lakers don't really have assets, but the only way you should actually give anything up for a big is if you actually think that Anthony Davis, for some reason, isn't going to be in in the playoffs or something ready for that. And even then, it's just iffy because Anthony Davis is still going to be on your team for the next half decade, and it feels like they have other exactly. needs. Um, do you have time for a couple more questions before I let you go? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, and you kind of touched upon this with the Gasol stuff. Uh, the Lakers offense, you know, last year, everyone, you know, got themselves all worked or a lot of people got themselves worked up about, well, the offense is bad without LeBron. The half court offense is mediocre in general. It falls off a cliff when he's not on the floor. And it's the same story this year. There are things that I think you can bank on. Like KCP is going to start shooting better from three. Again, I would assume Wesley Matthews won't shoot sub 30% like he has been um, basically for most of the year. But is it something to actually be concerned about when I think part of the thought process was, and well, I clearly missed with the Gasol stuff. I thought maybe he was going to play a bigger part in those no LeBron minutes, and he really just hasn't. Uh, But the part of the reason I know he wasn't available um, for a good amount of time, but Dennis Schroeder was supposed to like help with that. And the Lakers offense is still, when you look at the numbers, it's still sub-average when he's on the floor without LeBron. Um, Is that something that they actually should be concerned about or is this again a repeat of last year where it's well they're just going to get into the postseason and it's nothing's going to matter they're going to shoot a trillion percent from three for some reason and lebron's going to play 40 plus minutes a game (laughs) when he didn't even have to last year because that's how good they were and so i'm just curious as to where you land on that so assuming anthony davis is healthy and you know at like 90 percent of the level that he was last postseason which i realize is a strong assumption because he was damn good last year then I don't think there's any reason for concern. I mean, this has been a trend for LeBron James teams since the beginning of time, I believe, you know, like 7CE, right? Like that's when um, <laughs> LeBron James teams have been bad, you know, when he's off the court, whether like Kyrie Irving is there or Dwayne Wade is there or Anthony Davis is there. They're just not good in the regular season without him. And I have 
just grown less concerned with that because uh, he plays more minutes during the postseason and everybody's energy level just gets amped up at that time of the year. So it's not not a huge concern. Um, I do think that part of the impetus of bringing Schroeder in was to address those minutes. I I have to imagine that Polinka and Vogel are a little bit disappointed with that in that respect because, you know, you don't sacrifice a first-round pick and a really good player in Danny Green to get a guy who's just going to be like German Rondo, right? Like that's not what they were hoping for. But he does at least shoot off I the think, dribble, which is something that Rondo will probably does. Never he do. make them like I don't. I don't know. That was uh, I didn't sh- say that that had to be a criteria. Shooter, the Schroeder three-point shooting experience has not been my favorite thing to watch. But anyway, the important thing about Schroeder is that he met he plays really well next to LeBron James, and he was doing really well with LeBron James and Anthony Davis when that was an option earlier in the season. So, yeah, you know you're not fixing the 14 minutes or so that LeBron James hasn't played in the regular season. I think Trez is more important for that. And again, I, you know, I went into Trez a lot earlier. I think that's going to get better as the season goes on, but going forward, you know, like when we think about Dennis Schroeder potentially staying with the Lakers beyond this season, the fact that he fits with the stars, I think is far more important than the fact that he's not able to prop up the non-star lineups because like, like you said, during the postseason, like it's just not as important. Um, and I guess lastly, uh, what do you think actually is this team's biggest need if, you know, leading into the trade deadline or even if it's just uh longer term with them, something that's sort of the same question with the Clippers. I mean, they're, the Lakers are just as limited, basically. I think they have a little bit more room beneath the, the hard cap, but they're not blessed but with not a ton much. of, yeah. And they're not blessed <laughs> with a ton of assets. And what are you, you know, what are you giving up Talon Horton Tucker with to one, bring yeah. back salary and two, someone who's actually worth it. But do you see like, what is the need that you would, if you were them that you would focus on at the trade deadline. Yeah, I think they could use just another wing, which like, I mean, what team in the league could not use another wing. Right. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean the Clippers, I think it was more like a, a one, two that they were looking for. Right. Whereas I think the Clippers could, the Lakers could use more of a three, four um, Kyle Kuzma, I think has been great. I know uh, he was on the island. We didn't end up talking about him, but just, just a wonderful season for Kyle. The advanced numbers absolutely hate Kuzma. I don't understand what the deal is with that. But I think part of I it is just like he, some of those lineups that he's in with. Um, yeah, with yeah. a lot of those bench lineups are just are just bad. Um, but yeah, I think Kuzma's been really good. Uh, you can you can really trust him actually to be a, a good wing defender in the playoffs. Anthony Davis, I think, is the best wing defender that the Lakers have, and then obviously there's LeBron James. So you know there's options to work with if the Lakers don't find anybody on the buyout market. But I think that would be the number one concern because like. I always think about the Clippers matchup and you can't, if you're going to go small, which I think you're going to have to, if they're going to start surge, like you just can't put Marcus all in those groups. It's really hard for him to guard Ibaka. Um, Then you're going to put Davis at the five. So you can't have him guarding one of the two wings because then you lose all your rim protection. So then you put what LeBron on Kawhi and then who's guarding Paul George. Like it's, it's a problem. They need somebody else there. I think they thought Wes Matthews was going to be that guy. It's been pretty bad. Yeah. Woof. Indeed. Um, the West Matthews experience has been uh, less than ideal, I would say, for the Lakers so far. It's been far. more rocky I than think... most other West Matthews' experience. <laughs> you know, I, I actually had not realized that this was the first time in his career that he'd not been starting regularly. That was something that had not occurred to me. I, nothing about West Matthews to me screams starting lineup. But apparently that's a thing, and he's not accustomed to this limited role, and it's been hard for him. But I don't think that means that he should be starting because, let's face it, uh, KCP has been really good at room. I know. I should take that back for a second. KCP has proven that he could be really good, and Dennis Schroeder has been good. So, you know, you're not going to make an adjustment for Wes Matthews. Uh, but, yeah, if there was an option for, like, a wing guy, I don't know, maybe, like, you know, I don't even know who's available because Glenn I have Robinson two names that are getting, with the Kings. 
I have two names that will once again, like with the Clippers, they're just going to blow you away because they're such doorbusters. All right. I'm, I'm so excited, Dan. Let's do this. Um, the first one is Garrett Temple. I okay, thought, I love Garrett Temple. Yeah, and he's yeah. guarded some bigger guys this year. I, he definitely, I'm, I agree with you on the three four stuff, and I, I think he's overstretched if that's how you view him. But he's he's More of a played, two three, yeah, yeah, and and he gives them some extra ball handling, like with someone who can initiate a little bit. I don't think he'd be the the answer in no LeBron minutes, but I don't think he would right, hurt. Right, right. <laughs> um, and the other one is, and a lot of this is because the postseason will be taking place. If they have to go back inside the bubble, maybe I'll think differently about this, but Daniel House was the name that's bright to mind for me. <laughs> I mean, you could argue Daniel House won the Lakers the second round series last year. Uh, yeah, but... he, was, he was their most valuable player in the second oh round. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, again, I'm going to cop to the fact that I haven't really watched much of the Rockets, so I can't comment too much on how oh, he's House been is, bad. But... He's been yeah. uh, full, full stop. He's been bad. He's not shooting well, but he, when you, t- I think he covers, you know, he could basically defend two through five for you and imagining him and, you know, I'm assuming they'll close with Davis at the five um, in the postseason, which they don't really do in the regular season. You just need more wings around him. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so that was, um that was my, that was my, uh, that was my thought there, but I don't know that they're going to be able to do anything huge. Um, I've already kept you longer than I said I would. So thank you so much for coming on Sabrina. This was a joy yeah, this was so much fun, Dan. Um, well, rest assured, I'll be pestering you again in the future, as I'm sure you know by now. Um, follow Sabrina on Twitter if you guys have not already, at SabrinaJM. That's at S-A-B-R-E-E-N-A-J-M. She does a fantastic job covering the NBA at large and other stuff for SB Nation. Um, so again, Sabrina, thank you again so much for coming on. Yeah, happy to do it. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.